All right, um, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Luke chapter 1. So, uh, as, you, as you're probably aware, Christmas is celebrated pretty much by every Christian around the world. Um, now, we don't all celebrate it the same way, obviously. But in most places, you will find at least two things. Pretty much all Christians give gifts of some kind, and they have some sort of decoration associated with the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Uh, We decorate our homes as a way to remember and to honor the birth of Jesus. Decoration just means putting beautiful things on display. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that our worship as Christians is a form of decoration. The purpose of worship is to put God on display. Now, of course, God is glorious and He is beautiful already. We're not adding anything uh, to Him by our worship. Okay, so I don't mean I don't mean that. We're just simply bearing witness to our experience of God. We're we're saying this is who we believe God to be. This is what He's done in my life. This is, you know, so that sort of of decoration is what I mean. And this morning we're going to read Mary's song, which is um, sometimes called the Magnificat. And last Sunday we read about Mary. Uh, this teenage girl from Nazareth who was told by the angel Gabriel that she was going to be pregnant with the Son of God. And her response to that news is worship. She uses her words to decorate God. And that's what we're going to look at this morning together. Let's start reading verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. I love that, by the way. Leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth. And remember, from two weeks ago, Elizabeth is also pregnant, and she is an older woman, and this this birth was also a miracle. Um, And so, but if you think about it, there could have been some tension here. Um, There could have been some, humanly speaking, right, some resentment on the part of Elizabeth that her teenage cousin is also pregnant or some sort of pride on the part of Mary that she's, yeah, my miracle's better, right? I mean, I know that sounds silly, but there could have been something like that. Of course, that's absolutely not what happened. 
Instead, they celebrate. And Luke wants us to see this moment of, of worship that Elizabeth is, is giving thanks that even John, even baby John gets in on it, right? Twice it's mentioned. John leaps for joy as an infant in his mother's womb just at the presence of Mary and her unborn child. So my question for us is, have you ever wildly celebrated something? Have you ever felt that just, just overwhelming emotion that this is a moment to be celebrated? So much that it makes you just want to sing and dance and you can hardly contain it. Okay, I felt this a couple of times in my life. I felt it um, 20 years ago when Roxanne said yes. Uh, I felt it a few years later when she told me she was pregnant. Um, when she told me another 10 months later that she was pregnant again, the emotion was a little different, but it was still exciting. <laughs> uh, or however many months it was. It wasn't 10 months. But, but as we read Mary's song... It's best to think of it like that. Okay, so as we're reading through this, I want you to think of it as just this overwhelming, um, you know, it's almost like the angel told her, and now she's visiting with Elizabeth, and Elizabeth knows, even though she's not telling anybody, and it's, it's, uh, it's like it's now it's real, you know? Like now it's, it's, this is actually, this must be happening, right? And so she's just overwhelmed with this emotion, and so much so that she breaks into song. That's how I want you to think of it. Verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. So what does that mean, to magnify the Lord? Think of a telescope. A telescope uses a small piece of bent glass to help us see something that's far away and to see it as big as it really is, right? So things like stars and planets, which if you stand outside and you look up, they're just tiny little specks in the sky. But a telescope can help you see, you know, the rings of Saturn, right? It can help you see the, 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 the craters on the moon, things like that. And so Mary is saying... I want God to look bigger to me. I want to see God as big as he really is. And do you understand that really is the idea behind what we're doing this morning? It is the point of worship. We just want God to be bigger. That's all we're doing. We're just we're getting together and we're praying and we're singing and we're talking about God and we're just trying to we're the bit the little bit pieces of glass just trying to make God look bigger bigger to us bigger to our kids bigger to our neighbors bigger to our community bigger to the world but that's all we're doing that's what worship is we want God to be bigger we want him to be more significant to us we want God to have a bigger place in our lives. I want God to be worshipped in my life the way he is worshipped by the angels in heaven. 
Verse 47. <clears throat> she says, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So why do I want God to be bigger to me and to other people? Because he saved me. Now, wait a second, okay? That means the Virgin Mary was the sinner too, right? I mean, she's saying, God, my Savior, right? She needed to be saved just like us. So does that mean that God put his perfect son into the womb of a sinner? Yes. Just as he puts his perfect spirit into every Christian, also a sinner, right? Yes. And that's amazing. It's also very humbling. Verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. So Mary identifies herself as God's servant, but she also recognizes that carrying the Son of God in her womb is no small thing. Right? Elizabeth also testifies to this, right? She's like, you know, <laughs> you know I mean, she, there is a sense in which this is a tremendous blessing. And as I said last week, we don't always give Mary enough credit. She is literally carrying the Son of God in her womb. But Mary seems to recognize that this blessing was not given to her because of who she was. It was given to her because that's the kind of God that we worship. He, he cares deeply about the least and the smallest, right? I mean, Israel could have said, why us, O God? And his answer was, in the Old Testament, because you were the smallest of nations, because you were the least. The contrast between who God chooses to work with and who he is is always on display. And so this is a song about grace. It's a song about the unexpected and unearned favor of being blessed by God. Verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. <coughs> And when I think of mighty and great, I think of God doing things like parting the Red Sea. So if you go to the Old Testament, you read some of the amazing things that God did. He parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk across it. You know, he used the ten plagues in Egypt to set his people free. You know, I think of the Israelites walking around the city of Jericho, and they did nothing and the walls just fell, right? It's a big, mighty work of God. You know, they're in battle and the sun stands still. God did all of that. He did a lot of amazing things. We believe that he holds the universe in the palm of his hands. So he's capable of doing whatever he wants to do. And Mary uses those kinds of words in, in this verse. She uses the word dunatos. God is dunatos. He's the... He's this, that's the same word that we get the word dynamite from, right? So he's powerful, right? He's able to get the job done. He's explosive. Um, he also does, she uses the word megala, right? So he does these 
mega. He does these mega things. He does these big, loud, surprising things. But that's not what Mary means, is it? I mean, her experience of God is, is different. He's done something great and powerful. But for her, it came as something small and helpless that she's going to have to like hold and clothe and feed and clean up. And that is just the mystery of the incarnation. God is, is able to, to do great things. He's able to get the job done. He will accomplish His plans. He's, he's mighty to save, and He did it with a baby in the manger. It's, it's beautiful. It's just the most beautiful story. And, and Mary is bearing witness to this. God has broken into her life, and He's done something amazing. And he did this for her. I want us to see this is it's personal for her. It's powerful. He has impacted her life, obviously, in a very lasting way. And she wants to tell the world about it. She wants people to hear about this for generation after generation. Look at verse 50. <clears throat> and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, this is actually the turning point of the hymn. So she first sings out of her own experience. So she's, she's bearing witness to what she's seen God do for her. But now she's going to turn her attention towards God's faithfulness to his people. So she says, from generation to generation. That's covenant language in the Bible. Okay? So... What does that mean? It means God is faithful to families. And Mary is a product of that mercy. She's part of a very lengthy family tree. Joseph, part of a lengthy family tree of you know, going back generation to generation, right? That God has made promises. And her Jesus was the, the answer to the promise that God has been making to an entire nation for a couple thousand years. And in that, I want you to recognize, too, Mary's song is not unique. actually bears striking resemblance to 1 Samuel chapter 2, which is the song of Hannah. Hannah was the barren woman who prayed for a child, and God gave her Samuel, whom she then devoted to the temple. And Hannah prayed something very similar to Mary's song. And so you can see this thread of God's mercy running through literally every page of the Bible. And what has God done? Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, as we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, it's kind of fun to go back and read this now because we've, 
we've seen a lot of times where Luke has highlighted the ministry of Jesus, and we see this same theme over and over again, that the kingdom of Jesus will turn everything in the world you know, upside down or right side up, right? God's going to make things right. He's going to bring justice. He's going he's to lower the rich and the powerful. And he's going to raise up the poor and the hungry. <clears throat> Verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. That's the end of our text. So this is how Mary celebrated the good news of the incarnation. Very simply, she worshipped God. She remembered his promises. And she bore witness to his grace. That's, that's what she does. And I think there's something here that needs to be said about the way we worship as Christians. Because today in our church culture, a lot of Christians have grown to think about worship as an experience. And it can be, absolutely, Corporate worship, gathered worship, can be an experience. It can be a very freeing experience, very unifying, very uplifting experience. That's all true, but you understand that's not the point of it. That's not the purpose of worship. Worship is not about me coming to an event to get an experience. In fact, we were never meant to judge the worship gathering based on our own subjective interpretation of the experience that we have when we're there. And I know that's the way we think, because that's the way we think as Americans in some ways, but a lot of people walk into churches thinking, I sure hope the music team brings it today. Or, you know, I sure hope that the pastor hits a home run. In other words, whether you realize it or not, what you're saying is, I sure hope this is worth my time. You understand that's backwards? I say this in humility and in love. I'm, I'm, I understand the temptation. I'm, I've suffered it myself over the last 20-something years of being a Christian, but... Do you understand the means of grace that God has given us as his church? They are here by his grace, not because of me, but because of the promises, because of the faithfulness of God. The means of grace are here, and they are available to you regardless of how you feel when you walk out the door. You see, it's not really about us coming to get an experience. It's more about us coming to respond to what we believe God has already done. In other words, this is not just about me. I don't engage in 
faithful worship attendance only for my own sake. I'm not just here to be fed. The way God designed the church is that we're actually here for each other. We're here for our kids. We're here for the lost. We do this stuff over and over again because we believe that we have a responsibility to bear witness to God's mercy generation after generation. In other words, our worship together was designed by God to be this perpetual, attractive invitation for other people to join in. Most of you have probably seen the movie Elf. Think about how at the end of the movie, <clears throat> the girl starts singing all by herself. And then slowly, everyone else joins in until you've got this one big choir, and then the whole city starts singing, right? People are watching it on TV, singing it at home. And it's just this giant chorus, right? Jesus says that the kingdom of God works just like that. It starts small and insignificant, easily missed, like yeast or a mustard seed, right? But it grows and it spreads. And you understand the story of the Bible. It starts with just one little family. Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah. And then it becomes a nation. And then Jesus makes it possible for that to spread to the whole world. Brothers and sisters, we're not meant to ever step away from that chorus. Our worship is an invitation to other people to join us in worship. Worship is literally the most important thing that we do. As professing Christians who believe that God of the Bible is active and present in this world and has called us to himself and made us part of his family and has promised us a hope and a future in Jesus. It's the most important thing that we do. Do our kids know that? Do our neighbors know that about us? Does our family know this about us? That our, our worship attendance says something very important about our faith in God. Now, y'all know me. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to do this this morning. I mean, what does verse 50 say again? And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So our worship, I think, proves us to be people who fear God. Now that word, it's not in a cowering, scared kind of way. It is um, the quote that I read earlier about kind of kneeling before the manger. It is, a, it is a humble, reverent way. It's an awestruck kind of, I can't believe my God is this, right? That kind of fearing God. We believe that God is extending mercy to us, that He is promised to take our guilt and our misery 
And so worship is our response to God's mercy in our lives. It's not the cause of it. So God's not saving us because we're worshiping him. We're worshiping him because he saved us, right? Mercy can't be earned. It has to be given. We'll make that clear. So um, this is not a guilt trip to get you right with God. I mean, but, but listen, what does Mary say? Magnify the Lord with me. Rejoice in God your Savior. He has done great things for you. And so what I'm asking us to do as a church is let's change the way we think about worship. It's not about us. It's about Him. And the next generation needs to see God magnified in our worship and in our lives. So much more than we magnify things like success and entertainment and sports. And I could mention any other number of things, but those are the three that come to mind just because we're Americans, right? Our kids know what we care about most. They see our priorities. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't have kids or my kids are grown, guess what? My kids need to see you in worship. We've got a lot of young people in this church. You can hear them. <laughs> Little distracting. That's okay. This is good timing. It reminds us that they're here. Um, they need you. They need you to notice them. They need you to learn their names, to value them as members of the body of Christ. Right? We're a part of a covenant family together. Your presence matters. Be a part of this community. So according to Lifeway Research, teens who have had five or more adults from the church invest in them during their teenage years, were less likely to leave the church after high school. Y'all, that's not rocket science. That's just basic community. It's just basic. I care about you. And I know this probably seems like I'm taking a rabbit trail here at the end of the sermon, but it's, it's, it's there. It's in the text. Because we cannot magnify the Lord together if we don't show up. We need you, and you need us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we pray that you'd be gracious to us uh, as we consider just the importance. And Lord, I would even confess to you that um, so often my priorities do not seem to match the faith that I profess. And there's grace for us in that. But Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to remember again the joy of our salvation and what you've promised to do and what you're still doing. And Lord, I pray that we would not just think about the the one time that we professed faith and we know Jesus and so we're secure and I'm good and 
But like, think about the next generation and the neighbors and the friends and those that were lost. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts to um, just move closer to your vision for what the church should be. Not because we have to, but because we get to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.